Let's turn together to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. And maybe you came into church this morning and you were thinking, I don't feel like a Christian today. Or maybe you came to church hoping against hope that that person that you have been inviting a hundred times to church would finally this morning heed your call and show up and 11.05, 11.10 rolled around and you realized another time they promised they were going to come and they didn't show up. And you sit there thinking, I feel like God is never going to save them. Or maybe you woke up this morning to the exact same worries and difficulties and trials that you woke up to yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And you find yourself saying, I feel like I don't understand anything that God is doing in my life. I can see it in your faces. You you just, Pastor, does the Bible have anything to say to me this morning? And that's where Nehemiah chapter 7 comes in. Now, last week, we were so excited. In chapter 6, all these incredible things were happening. We were so excited and encouraged because the people were that close to finishing. And then the enemies of God really laid on the heat. And they were trying to do whatever they could to prevent them. But Nehemiah and the people persevered through distractions and threats and temptations to sin. And he finishes the chapter by saying, the impossible came true. We finished the wall in record time, 52 days. And then you look at Nehemiah chapter 7, and you think, one of these chapters again? 72 verses of numbers and obscure Hebrew names. Brothers and sisters, everyone look up here, all right? I want us all to believe that God has us here on this day to hear Nehemiah chapter 7 because Nehemiah chapter 7 in whatever circumstances we are in is exactly what our souls need to hear. All right, we've got to believe that this morning. Believe that God knows your life better than I could ever, better than you could ever. And the thing that you need in your life today is Nehemiah chapter 7. So we have to believe that it's no accident that we're here together to read this word. And may God grant us the faith to believe in Nehemiah 7, what is truly real. So let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Raamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehum, Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephathiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 854, or 45. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bevi, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Donikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Adin, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Harif, of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, of Chephira and Beroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmash, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sana'a, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodeva, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akuv, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Yuza, the sons of Pasia, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefush, uh, Nefushasim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of ba- uh, Baz- Bazlith, the sons of Mehida, 
the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sota, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Ja'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephetiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pochereth Hazabayim, the sons of Ammon, all the temple servants, the sons of Solomon's servants, were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmiah, Telharsha, Cheruv, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken wives of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and, who, and was called by their name. These sought their registrations among the enrollments in the genealogy, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's household gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 2,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. You may be seated. In this chapter, my two uh, college majors of biblical studies and mathematics just coalesce. The Bible and Numbers. As I said, last week in chapter 6, Nehemiah and the people, they finished the walls in record time with all kinds of setbacks, all kinds of threats from outside, from within inside, despite their limited resources, despite their small forces. It was so impossible, it was so incredible that Nehemiah records at the end of the chapter, when all of our enemies heard of it, all of the nations around us were greatly afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. However, walls are great, but walls don't make a city. People make a city. In chapter 7, Nehemiah finally gets a moment to catch his breath. He's been up around the clock, serving, working hard. He finally catches his breath and he surveys the city inside these vast walls that they've erected in impossible timing. 
And it's like the city of Jerusalem is like my daughter Caroline walking around the house in her daddy's shoes. The walls are too big for the number of people to fit inside them. The city is too big for the people. Look at verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So Nehemiah surveys the city inside these walls, and the streets are empty. Neighborhood upon neighborhood without a single household in it. Nehemiah ends up having to set up extra security at the, gar- at the gates because the city is so vast and the people are so scattered within it, they need heightened security to protect the few that are inside. So, God puts it in Nehemiah's heart. It's time to find the people to fill this city. That's why he turns to this genealogical record this morning of obscure names and numbers. In fact, if we were preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah together, we would have come across this exact same passage twice in the sermon series. God saw fit to record this list not once in Ezra chapter 2, but twice when Nehemiah digs the record back out of the records and reads it to us this morning. And that's when these 400... Uh, 42,360 people were first recorded. And so my hope this morning as we survey this historical record together is that we would learn four truths about God. Number one, He is the God of the real. Number two, He is the God of the remnant. Thirdly, He is the God of the return. And then lastly, he is the God of the retrospect. So let's look at each of those briefly together this morning. Number one, he is the God of the real, as in real history. And uh, this morning as I was reading, and whenever you get to these kinds of portions that you usually skip, of the Bible, right? There are lists of numbers and names that you've never heard of. You might think to yourself, this reads like a history book. All these numbers and weird names. And in that moment, what you should say to yourself is, praise the Lord that it does. Because the Bible is meant to record real history. This isn't just some myth Because you know what? You go read Greek mythology, Roman mythology. They have no interest in recording real names and family lineages. This isn't some fairy tale. You don't go read a fairy tale and find a long list of numbers, accurate numbers down to the the ones place in a fairy tale. Fairy tales don't keep record of building supplies. Why? Why? Because fairy tales aren't recording real history. But Nehemiah 7 calls us to remember that God is not in the business of weaving together some fanciful, fanciful bedtime story. This is as real as it gets. We often get distracted when we allow Satan to convince us 
that what's happening here in my life is somehow more real, more truthful, more authentic than what is written on the pages of this book. My feelings are real. My desires, what's inside of me, that's what's real. My pain, my daily struggle, what I'm experiencing is real and we let Satan convince us or we convince ourselves and it's even more real than what's written here. However, we have to fight to believe. Over and above, whatever our feelings are in this moment, whatever emotions we might wake up with each morning, over what Satan and all of our senses are screaming at us is real, we have to believe over and above everything that this is real. We have to put our hope in a story that we have not seen with our eyes. Doesn't the author of Hebrews tell us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? Faith believes, faith hopes against all hope that the story we find in the Bible is more real than anything else we will encounter in all of creation. Sometimes I'll find myself in a Bible study with non-Christians and I'm explaining to them the gospel. And I'll have this kind of out-of-body moment where I'm almost witnessing myself tell these people that I believe that a man who came to earth 2,000 years ago was actually the Son of God who died on the cross and that actually it was for my sins and that He actually is raised and that now I believe He's reigning in heaven and that I actually believe that this man is going to be coming back for me one day and I see myself saying these things and I think, they must think that I'm crazy. That this story some of which took place thousands of years ago, that I'm living and believing that it has effect on my life, in fact, that I am living this story today. That I believe any of this is real. And I think sometimes, you know, we just have to take a step back and realize that is what faith is, is believing everything from Genesis to maps is real. More real than anything else in our lives because He is the God of the real. First Peter reminds us, no one in here has ever seen God. None of us in here has ever seen Jesus. But though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. So the fight of faith is this constant fight to believe that the stories in the Bible are more real than whatever I am feeling or experiencing today. You may not feel like Jesus died for your sins every moment of your life. You may not have walked through these doors feeling like the resurrection was real. You may not feel this morning like God is in control or that He has a purpose for your life. And it may feel like whatever trial or difficulty or suffering you are experiencing in your life is going to last forever. In those moments, 
you and I have to choose to believe that he is the God of the real. That he has sent his son to a real world to accomplish real salvation for real people like you and me. We have to choose to believe that his love for us is as real as the numbers that are written on this page. Nehemiah chapter 7 reminds us firstly that he is the God of the real. Well, secondly, Nehemiah shows us this morning that he is the God of the remnant. He is the God of the remnant. So Nehemiah surveys the city after completing the walls. And he realizes that the new, shiny, tall, fortified walls don't do anything about the state of the city inside it. Before, Jerusalem was a desolate wasteland. Now, Jerusalem is just a really well-protected desolate wasteland. A city isn't a city until it has houses and people within its walls. And that's why the Lord puts it in Nehemiah's heart to go dig up this decades-old record to see who was it that came back. What was the remnant that was meant to inhabit this city in the first place? And when the people of God were carried off, if you know the story, they were carried off to Babylon. He mentions that in verse 6. Hundreds of thousands of people carried off. And it's called the remnant because 70 years later, only 42,360 come back. These are the people who are meant to inhabit the new Jerusalem. God says, I am the God of the remnant. You and I look at this page this morning and we see a bunch of numbers. But when the Lord looks at Nehemiah chapter 7, he never sees just numbers. Every single one of these numbers has a name and is a person that the Lord sought out to return and to bring back to the new Jerusalem. Brothers, we look at this page and we see how God was so intent about making sure that every single one of the people that He brought back made it into His new city and how much He cared about the numbers and how He even had them take meticulous record of all the numbers and all the people who returned back as a part of the remnant. And, and, and I wonder... How well are we keeping track of the remnant that's here at College Street Baptist Church? Nehemiah and the people are are somehow expecting to keep track of 42,360 people. Our membership list has way less than that. But how are we doing? Does every single name on that list have meaning? us or are they just a number on a page we are the people scattered from among the nations saved by Jesus gathered to the new Jerusalem and yet how flippant are we with our records with protecting and keeping watch over the remnant that God has brought to College Street Baptist Church We were just talking about this this morning in our deacons meeting, how important it is for us 
to know who the members of this church are by name. To be caring for them. To be protecting them because God cares about the numbers down to the very last one. And so we as a church should do the same. I want to quote Richie Warren this morning. He was preaching this morning. You should have heard him in our deacon's meeting. This is what he had to say. He said, when a family joins, it's fine. It's great for us to celebrate and be excited. But when they join, that's not where the job stops. That's where the job starts. And that's got to be our attitude. That is us recognizing that God is the God of the remnant. That's exactly the point of chapter 7. God says, I promise to gather my sheep from the four corners of the earth. Shame on us if He should gather all of His sheep into College Street Baptist Church and we can't keep track of them. Can you imagine? Jesus strolls in this morning and He pulls out our membership list and says, alright, that's great, but uh, there's 20 names on here that are missing. Where are they? Well, Jesus, we haven't seen Him in a couple years. Oh, really? <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> You and I should know exactly how many members we have on the list. We should know who those members are. And we should be caring for one another as the remnant of God's people. Because God cares. And so should we. What is more, Nehemiah, he surveys the city walls in verse 4 and it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Look around the sanctuary for a moment. We got room for how many more here? At least 30, 40. The city is large and broad. The people within it were few. What if this sanctuary was filled not just with people, but people that we got to witness receive Jesus, repent of their sins, believe and get baptized and then fill this place 30 or 40 50, 60. Is that what we're praying for? Is that what we're hoping for? Or does God just show us an empty city and say, ah, it's the best you can do? city's going to be uninhabited. You built the walls too big. What if we started to care about numbers, the right numbers? Zechariah the prophet, whenever this remnant came back, let me describe, let me re- describe to you the city that he envisioned. It was a place where one day the streets of the New Jerusalem were full of elderly people leaning on their canes and open squares where children are just filling the streets, playing together. Is that what you picture for College Street Baptist Church? Surely the 42,360 people who returned to Jerusalem thought that was impossible when they saw how desolate the city was. Zechariah says, if it's impossible in the sight of this remnant, does that mean it's impossible in the sight of God? He says, impossible. Fill College Street Baptist Church with all new believers. Impossible. Is that what the Lord says? I seem to remember the Lord coming to a certain woman and saying, with God, all things are impossible. And when we survey the city and we see how broad and wide it is and the people within it are too few, the answer is not to shrink the city. 
The answer is to pray that God will give us more people. And then for us to go outside the walls and to share the good news, trusting that God is going to gather them with our hands. Gather them into this city. Number two, he is the God of the remnant. Which brings us to the third truth about the Lord this morning. Number three, he is the God of the return. Look at me with verse six. Look with me at verse six. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiled among Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, that he had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They returned, each to his own town. This used to be their Jerusalem. This used to be their land. This used to be their inheritance. But then they forfeited it. How? They sinned. They worshiped false gods. They disobeyed God. And they filled the land with sin and disobedience and filth and shame and guilt. And so God had to remove them out of the beautiful promised land that He had given to them and had to send them far off to serve foreign kings But even then, God had a plan for their return. Even though He sent them off to the faraway land of Babylon, God always had a plan to bring them back. Because this is who God is, and this is what He's been doing since the dawn of creation. Do you remember the garden? It's a beautiful place, flowing with milk and honey, and it's got rivers running through it, and trees that bear all kinds of fruit, and gemstones sparkling under every in every hill and rock. And he gives it to Adam and Eve. But what do they do? They sin. Disobey God. And they fill the perfect garden where the presence of God dwelt with man with sin and guilt and shame. And they have to leave the garden. They have to depart from the presence of the Lord. But ever since Genesis chapter 3, in fact, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for their return. And that's what the Bible is all about. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end is about how God is going to return His people back to His presence to dwell with Him forever. And the Scriptures echo this word over and over again. Return. 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 Come back. We were not made to serve other kings. We were not made to be slaves to our various passions and lusts. We were not made to toil day after day in fruitless labor and then to die. We were made for some other place. We have fallen from paradise. And in the depths of our heart, we know that somewhere we want to go back. We don't know where it is. But we want to return. Return to Jerusalem is about an ache in the depths of the heart of the people of God. A return to a very ancient place, a place that was ruined by a wicked and powerful prince who took us captive by his deceptive schemes and dragged us off into a faraway country. 
But each of us carries in our hearts a longing to return, to go back to that city where we have an inheritance, where we have a king, where the Lord is with us, where brothers and sisters dwell with one another, not just with one another, but with the Lord himself. But the truth this morning is that we are not able to return in our own power. So God, return to us. He came and lived among us as the person Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was called Emmanuel, God with us, and is called to us this morning and to every person and every generation is this. Return, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do I get back to God? How do I get into this new city that's waiting for me? Where do I turn? Jesus says, turn to me. I'm the way. Turn to the Jesus who has already returned to find you. Who's died on a cross. Whose body has been broken. His blood has been shed so that he could purchase you and bring you back. And forgive you of all of your sins. So that you could dwell with his people. And dwell with him forever. Jesus says return. Stop serving the king of Babylon and the kings of this world. And you're being slave to your passions and your sins. Come to me. Return. This is what you are made for. Come back. Number three. He is the God of the return. So our first three truths this morning. He is the God of the real He is the God of the remnant. And thirdly, He is the God of the return. Finally this morning, He is the God of the retrospect. What's that old saying when you toss around? Hindsight is 20-20, right? What do we mean by that? We mean that, you know, when, when we're looking back, things come into clear focus. It's when we're in the heat of things and right in the moment that our heads are foggy, we're not sure where things are going, we maybe are cl- our, our thoughts are clouded by the way we feel or our emotions or we don't have all the details and so we make unwise choices. But in retrospect, it all clicks together, right? And we understand exactly what was going on. And the reason that that is so true in each of our lives and in the grand narrative of salvation is because the Lord is the God of The retrospect. You see, when Nehemiah heard reports about what was going on in Jerusalem and he was weeping and his heart was moved and he did this thousand mile trek back to Jerusalem, he just came to Jerusalem and put his hands to whatever work he found in front of him. Day after day, faithful in whatever step of the project he found himself doing. And he's a man whose heart is steered by God. We heard that here in chapter 7. He says, verse 5, Then God put it into my heart. And so often we see Nehemiah's prayers. And they're not long. They're like half a sentence long. All he says is, Lord, strengthen my hands. He doesn't say, God, what are you doing? Lord, why are you doing this? Simply, God, strengthen my hands. Whatever work you've put in front of me today, strengthen my hands to do that. Nehemiah trusts that whatever promises God has already given him 
are enough for him to labor faithfully for another day. But Nehemiah's story makes a lot more sense to us because we're looking back. We're not living in it in the moment. We're, we know how the story finishes, and so we're looking back. We know what comes after. Question. Whenever I was reading that long list of places and names, when I said the men of Bethlehem, did that kind of kindle a spark? Why? Because we know what's coming out of Bethlehem, don't we? Because we know the ending. Consider this. Nehemiah never knew, or maybe at least doesn't show us in the book of Nehemiah, that he fully realized that he was rebuilding the city that one day would welcome the Savior of the world. The people, the the small remnant that he's gathering into these city walls would become the great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers of people who would lay their eyes on Jesus Christ. In retrospect, Nehemiah is building the set and the stage upon which Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is going to come marching. But it's only when Jesus comes riding on a donkey through the gates that Nehemiah's hands built that we realize what God was doing in Nehemiah chapter 7. This morning you may be frustrated. I don't know what God is doing in my life. I don't understand why He's letting this happen or making me do this or that. What has God by His Spirit put into your heart to do? What passion has His promises ignited in you? What obedience is His Word calling you to today? What clear task has He laid before your hands? Pursue that with all of your heart. And trust and believe that in retrospect, the God who is the God of the retrospect, will show you how all of these things are working together for your good. No matter how your heart feels this morning, I need you to leave this morning believing that Jesus Christ and His love is more real than you could ever know. His blood shed on the cross is truer than anything you may see or hear today. Because He is the God of the real. Let us grow in our care for one another. For the members of this church, keeping track of each other and watching over one another. Because He is the God of the remnant. Let us seek the Lord while He may be found. Let us call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let Him, let us return to our God. For he will have compassion on us. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon because he is the God of return. And let us trust his plan. Let us trust his story even when he doesn't show us what he's doing right now. Because I promise you, the Bible says God has it planned out from A to Z, from beginning to end. Every single page of your life is written in his book before a single one comes to be. May we put our hands to the work and trust in His Spirit to lead our hearts 
Because his will will become clear in due time. He is the God of the retrospect. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would give us perspective by your word as each week we are drawn out of our own stories and into a story that is realer than real and that consumes our lives and refocuses our attention on Jesus Christ. Lord, we simply want to follow you. We ask that your spirit would put in our hearts what work you have for us today to labor for your name's sake while we wait for you to return to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.